Chapter Twenty Three of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Three England under Edward the Fourth. King Edward the Fourth was not quite twenty-one years of age when he took that unquiet seat upon the throne of England. The Lancaster party, the Red Roses, were then assembling in great numbers near York, and it was necessary to give them battle instantly. But the stout Earl of Warwick, leading for the young king, and the young king himself closely following him, and the English people crowding round the royal standard, the White and the Red Roses met on a wild March day when the snow was falling heavily at Towton, and there such a furious battle raged between them that the total loss amounted to forty thousand men, all Englishmen, fighting upon English ground against one another. The young king gained the day, took down the heads of his father and brother from the walls of York, and put up the heads of some of the most famous noblemen engaged in the battle on the other side. Then he went to London, and was crowned with great splendor. A new Parliament met. No fewer than one hundred and fifty of the principal noblemen and gentlemen on the Lancaster side were declared traitors, and the King, who had very little humanity, though he was handsome in person and agreeable in manners, resolved to do all he could to pluck up the red rose, root and branch. Queen Margaret, however, was still active for her young son. She obtained help from Scotland and from Normandy, and took several important English castles. But Warwick soon retook them. The Queen lost all her treasure on board ship in a great storm, and both she and her son suffered great misfortunes. Once, in the winter weather, as they were riding through a forest, they were attacked and plundered by a party of robbers, and when they had escaped from these men, and were passing alone and on foot through a thick dark part of the wood, they came, all at once, upon another robber. So the queen, with a stout heart, took the little prince by the hand, and, going straight up to that robber, said to him, "'My friend, this is the young son of your lawful king. I confide him to your care.' The robber was surprised, but took the boy in his arms, and faithfully restored him and his mother to their friends. In the end, the queen's soldiers, being beaten and dispersed, she went abroad again, and kept quiet for the present. Now, all this time, the deposed King Henry was concealed by a Welsh knight, who kept him close in his castle. But next year, the Lancaster party, recovering their spirits, raised a large body of men, and called him out of his retirement, to put him at their head. They were joined by some powerful noblemen, who had sworn fidelity to the new king, but who were ready, as usual, to break their oaths whenever they thought there was anything to be got by it. One of the worst things in the history of the War of the Red and White Roses is the ease with which these noblemen— who should have set an example of honour to the people, left either side as they took slight offence or were disappointed in their greedy expectations, and joined the other. Well, Warwick's brother soon beat the Lancastrians, and the false noblemen, being taken, were beheaded without a moment's loss of time. 
The deposed King had a narrow escape. Three of his servants were taken, and one of them bore his cap of estate, which was set with pearls and embroidered with two golden crowns. However, the head to which the cap belonged got safely into Lancashire, and lay pretty quietly there, the people in the secret being very true, for more than a year. At length, an old monk gave such intelligence as led to Henry's being taken while he was sitting at dinner in a place called Waddington Hall. He was immediately sent to London, and met at Islington by the Earl of Warwick, by whose directions he was put upon a horse, with his legs tied under it, and paraded three times round the pillory. Then he was carried off to the tower, where they treated him well enough. The white rose being so triumphant, the young king abandoned himself entirely to pleasure and led a jovial life. But thorns were springing up under his bed of roses, as he soon found out. For, having been privately married to Elizabeth Woodville, a young widow lady, very beautiful and very captivating, and at last resolving to make his secret known, and to declare her his queen, he gave some offence to the Earl of Warwick, who was usually called the King-Maker, because of his power and influence, and because of his having lent such great help to placing Edward on the throne. This offence was not lessened by the jealousy with which the Neville family, the Earl of Warwick's, regarded the promotion of the Woodville family, for the young queen was so bent on providing for her relations that she made her father an earl and a great officer of state, married her five sisters to young noblemen of the highest rank, and provided for her younger brother, a young man of twenty, by marrying him to an immensely rich old duchess of eighty. The Earl of Warwick took all this pretty graciously for a man of his proud temper, until the question arose to whom the King's sister, Margaret, should be married. The Earl of Warwick said, To one of the French King's sons, and was allowed to go over to the French King to make friendly proposals for that purpose, and to hold all manner of friendly interviews with him. But while he was so engaged, the Woodville party married the young lady to the Duke of Burgundy. Upon this he came back in great rage and scorn, and shut himself up discontented in his castle of Middleham. A reconciliation, though not a very sincere one, was patched up between the Earl of Warwick and the King, and lasted until the Earl married his daughter, against the King's wishes, to the Duke of Clarence. While the marriage was being celebrated at Calais, the people in the north of England, where the influence of the Neville family was strongest, broke out into rebellion. Their complaint was that England was oppressed and plundered by the Woodville family, whom they demanded to have removed from power. As they were joined by great numbers of people, and as they openly declared that they were supported by the Earl of Warwick, the King did not know what to do. At last, as he wrote to the Earl beseeching his aid, he and his new son-in-law came over to England, and began to arrange the business by shutting the King up in Middleham Castle in the safe-keeping of the Archbishop of York. So England was not only in the strange position of having two kings at once, but they were both prisoners at the same time. Even as yet, however, the King-maker was so far true to the King, that he dispersed a new rising of the Lancastrians, took their leader prisoner, and brought him to the king, who ordered him to be immediately executed. 
he presently allowed the King to return to London, and there innumerable pledges of forgiveness and friendship were exchanged between them and between the Nevilles and the Woodvilles, the King's eldest daughter was promised in marriage to the heir of the Neville family, and more friendly oaths were sworn, and more friendly promises made, than this book would hold. They lasted about three months. At the end of that time, the Archbishop of York made a feast for the King, the Earl of Warwick, and the Duke of Clarence at his house, the Moor in Hertfordshire. The King was washing his hands before supper, when someone whispered him that a body of a hundred men were lying in ambush outside the house. Whether this were true or untrue, the King took fright, mounted his horse, and rode through the dark night to Windsor Castle. Another reconciliation was patched up between him and the kingmaker, but it was a short one, and it was the last. A new rising took place in Lincolnshire, and the king marched to repress it. Having done so, he proclaimed that both the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Clarence were traitors, who had secretly assisted it, and who had been prepared publicly to join it on the following day. In these dangerous circumstances they both took ship and sailed away to the French court. And here a meeting took place between the Earl of Warwick and his old enemy, the Dowager Queen Margaret, through whom his father had had his head struck off, and to whom he had been a bitter foe. But now, when he said that he had done with the ungrateful and perfidious Edward of York, and that henceforth he devoted himself to the restoration of the House of Lancaster, either in the person of her husband or of her little son, she embraced him as if he had ever been her dearest friend. She did more than that. She married her son to his second daughter, the Lady Anne. However agreeable this marriage was to the new friends, it was very disagreeable to the Duke of Clarence, who perceived that his father-in-law, the kingmaker, would never make him king now. So, being but a weak-minded young traitor, possessed of very little worth or sense, he readily listened to an artful court lady sent over for the purpose, and promised to turn traitor once more, and go over to his brother, King Edward, when a fitting opportunity should come. The Earl of Warwick, knowing nothing of this, soon redeemed his promise to the Dowager Queen Margaret by invading England and landing at Plymouth where he instantly proclaimed King Henry, and summoned all Englishmen between the ages of sixteen and sixty to join his banner. Then, with his army increasing as he marched along, he went northward, and came so near King Edward, who was in that part of the country, that Edward had to ride hard for it to the coast of Norfolk, and thence to get away in such ships as he could find to Holland. Thereupon, the triumphant kingmaker and his false son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, went to London, took the old king out of the tower, and walked him in a great procession to St. Paul's Cathedral with the crown upon his head. This did not improve the temper of the Duke of Clarence, who saw himself farther off from being king than ever, but he kept his secret and said nothing. The Neville family were restored to all their honours and glories, and the Woodvilles and the rest were disgraced. The kingmaker, less sanguinary than the king, shed no blood except that of the Earl of Worcester, who had been so cruel to the people as to have gained the title of the Butcher. Him they caught hidden in a tree, and him they tried and executed. No other death stained the kingmaker's triumph. 
To dispute this triumph, back came King Edward again, next year, landing at Ravenspur, coming on to York, causing all his men to cry, Long live King Henry! and swearing on the altar, without a blush, that he came to lay no claim to the crown. Now was the time for the Duke of Clarence, who ordered his men to assume the white rose and declare for his brother. The Marquis of Montague, though the Earl of Warwick's brother, also declining to fight against King Edward, he went on successfully to London, where the Archbishop of York let him into the city, and where the people made great demonstrations in his favour. For this they had four reasons. Firstly, there were great numbers of the king's adherents hiding in the city and ready to break out. Secondly, the king owed them a great deal of money, which they could never hope to get if he were unsuccessful. Thirdly, there was a young prince to inherit the crown. And fourthly, the king was gay and handsome and more popular than a better man might have been with the city ladies. After a stay of only two days with these worthy supporters, the king marched out to Barnet Common to give the Earl of Warwick battle. And now it was to be seen, for the last time, whether the king or the king-maker was to carry the day. While the battle was yet pending, the faint-hearted Duke of Clarence began to repent, and sent over secret messages to his father-in-law, offering his services in mediation with the king. But the Earl of Warwick disdainfully rejected them, and replied that Clarence was false and perjured, and that he would settle the quarrel by sword. The battle began at four o'clock in the morning, and lasted until ten, and during the greater part of the time it was fought in a thick mist, absurdly supposed to be raised by a magician. The loss of life was very great, for the hatred was strong on both sides. The king-maker was defeated, and the king triumphed. Both the Earl of Warwick and his brother were slain, and their bodies lay in St. Paul's for some days as a spectacle to the people. Margaret's spirit was not broken even by this great blow. Within five days she was in arms again, and raised her standard in Bath, whence she set off with her army to try and join Lord Pembroke, who had a force in Wales. But the king, coming up with her outside the town of Tewkesbury, and ordering his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, who was a brave soldier, to attack her men, she sustained an entire defeat, and was taken prisoner together with her son, now only eighteen years of age. The conduct of the king to this poor youth was worthy of his cruel character. He ordered him to be led into his tent. "'And what,' said he, "'brought you to England?' "'I came to England,' replied the prisoner, with the spirit which a man of spirit might have admired in a captive, "'to recover my father's kingdom, which descended to him as his right, and from him descends to me as mine.' The king, drawing off his iron gauntlet, struck him with it in the face, and the Duke of Clarence and some other lords who were there drew their noble swords and killed him. His mother survived him a prisoner for five years. After her ransom by the King of France, she survived for six years more. Within three weeks of this murder, Henry died one of those convenient sudden deaths which were so common in the tower. In plainer words, he was murdered by the King's order. Having no particular excitement on his hands after this great defeat of the Lancaster party, and being perhaps desirous to get rid of some of his fat, 
for he was now getting too corpulent to be handsome, the king thought of making war on France. As he wanted more money for this than the Parliament could give him, though they were usually ready enough for war, he invented a new way of raising it, by sending for the principal citizens of London, and telling them, with a grave face, that he was very much in want of cash, and would take it very kind in them if they would lend him some. It being impossible for them safely to refuse, they complied, and the monies thus forced from them were called, no doubt to the great amusement of the king and the court, as if they were free gifts, benevolences. What with grants from Parliament, and what with benevolences, the king raised an army and passed over to Calais. As nobody wanted war, however, the French king made proposals of peace, which were accepted, and a truce was concluded for seven long years. The proceedings between the kings of France and England on this occasion were very friendly, very splendid, and very distrustful. They finished with a meeting between the two kings on a temporary bridge over the river Somme, where they embraced through two holes in a strong wooden grating like a lion's cage, and made several bows and fine speeches to one another. It was time now that the Duke of Clarence should be punished for his treacheries, and fate had his punishment in store. He was, probably, not trusted by the king, for who could trust him who knew him, and he had certainly a powerful opponent in his brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who, being avaricious and ambitious, wanted to marry that widowed daughter of the Earl of Warwick's, who had been espoused to the deceased young prince at Calais. Clarence, who wanted all the family wealth for himself, secreted this lady, whom Richard found disguised as a servant in the city of London, and whom he married. Arbitrators appointed by the king then divided the property between the brothers. This led to ill-will and mistrust between them. Clarence's wife dying, and he wishing to make another marriage, which was obnoxious to the king, his ruin was hurried by that means too. At first the court struck at his retainers and dependents, and accused some of them of magic and witchcraft, and similar nonsense. Successful against this small game, it then mounted to the duke himself, who was impeached by his brother the king in person on a variety of such charges. He was found guilty, and is sentenced to be publicly executed. He never was publicly executed, but he met his death somehow in the tower, and no doubt through some agency of the king or his brother Gloucester, or both. It was supposed at the time that he was told to choose the manner of his death, and that he chose to be drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine. I hope the story may be true, for it would have been a becoming death for such a miserable creature. The king survived him some five years. He died in the forty-second year of his life, and the twenty-third of his reign. He had a very good capacity and some good points, but he was selfish, careless, sensual, and cruel. He was a favorite with the people for his showy manners, and the people were a good example to him in the constancy of their attachment. He was penitent on his deathbed for his benevolences and other extortions, and ordered restitution to be made to the people who had suffered from them. He also called about his bed the enriched members of the Woodville family, and the proud lords whose honors were of older date, and endeavored to reconcile them for the sake of the peaceful succession of his son and the tranquillity of England. End of chapter 23
Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois.